um, a 2018 survey, it's a recent survey last year, showed that Americans' anxiety levels experienced a sharp increase in over from 2017 to 2018. I'm sure that's been... I, I assume it has also increased from 2018 to 2019, but I couldn't find that data. Uh, but almost 40% of respondents said that they felt more anxious than they had the previous year. And in fact, that was following a spike from 2016 to 17, where 36% of people said that they had also felt uh, significantly more uh, anxious than the previous year. And so there's something called the anxiety score, and it, the national average has tipped over halfway on a 100-point scale. It's now sitting at 51. So on average, uh, all of America is kind of like above above what is kind of the middle, what is considered, I guess. I don't, I don't want to use the word normal, but uh, everyone is, is basically pretty anxious. And um, it says that... Uh, this report found that increased stress and anxiety can uh, significantly impact many aspects of people's lives, including their mental health. It can affect families. And the five key areas from the poll that people felt anxious about were health, safety, finances, politics, and relationships. These were the big things. Now, I read this, and I thought to myself, well, it seems about right. That seems about right. Because it does feel like, I feel like I feel it, you know, that kind of anxiety, like stress, worry. And I even feel like culturally, it's more of a normal thing. A lot more people feel anxious, feel worried. Uh, to be honest, just personally, like this is something that I've struggled with a lot in my life, you know. When I was growing up, it was a huge thing, a huge part of my life. Like for like two years, I basically didn't sleep, you know. Um, and I was very near suicidal, I'd say, you know, when I was in high school for a time. Because I just felt so overwhelmed. Now, I think one of the things that we naturally try to do when we feel this, and we all feel it for whatever reason, the state of political affairs in our country or the world or because of uh, we feel unsafe or we're worried, we're worried about money, we're worried about our families, we're worried about relationships. I think the natural inclination, the thing that we feel like is going to solve that problem is we try to grab control over our lives. Right. So oftentimes if we feel like something is making us spin out of control in terms of us being worried, in terms of us being stressed, in terms of us feeling anxious, then what we will think is, I need to get control of my life, right? I need to get control over the circumstances of my life. And we start to look at the things in our lives and we say, what can I change, right? Should I move? Do I need to go to a bigger house? Do I need to go to a different kind of place? Do I need to change my finances? Do I need to change my job? Like, maybe this isn't my calling. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Do I need to change my relationships? Maybe I need to stop 
talking to this person. Maybe I need to go away from the community that I'm a part of. You know, there are all these kinds of different ways that we think if we had control over these things. And oftentimes I think what we really wish is just that we could make whatever we wanted to happen happen. Like I wish I could just snap my fingers and that job is now my job. That I can snap my fingers and those finances are now my finances. I could snap my fingers and these people acted in a way that I wanted them to act. They treated me in the way that I wanted to be treated And we feel like if we had that control, then we could stop the worry. We could stop the stress. We could stop the anxiety. We would be at peace. But my question is, is that really a biblical prescription for dealing with worry? Is the problem in your life that you don't have enough control? If you did, would that get rid of your worry or does the bible say that there is another way to deal with our stress our worry our anxiety that's what we're going to look at today so if you guys have your bibles let's go ahead and open them up to um the book of matthew matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34 matthew 6 25 through 34 I brought my wrong Bible to church today. This is my giant study Bible (laughs) that I was using at Bible study, and I don't usually bring this one. It takes up this whole thing right here. Um, And the reason I put it in this thing, by the way, this has nothing to do with anything. The reason I put it in this thing is because the, the binding is, like, broken, you know, but then it has all my, like, highlights and notes, and I didn't want to get another Bible, so I, I, I resurrected it. <laughs> I kept it, keep it in this thing. Okay, anyway, just giving you guys some anecdotes, you know, while you find the passage. Matthew 6, Matthew six twenty five, 25, um, and we'll read all the way through 34. This is God's word. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Let's continue reading. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is... which Today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Okay, so let's stop there for a second. How do we deal with worry? So a couple things I think we can see in this passage. Here is the first thing. Trust that God is an utterly better sovereign than you are. Okay, trust that God is an utterly better, and I just, I like the word sovereign, but you, could, you can replace that with like a, a king, let's say. That he is a, a greater, he is utterly better at ruling than you are. Right? One implication from the passage is that God is capable of taking care of the whole world. 
Right? Jesus is reminding his listeners that God manages things like the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Right? God has designed plants and animals to be able to exist and survive in the world without our assistance. Right? Like, like your dog needs you, yes. But your dog needs you because that dog has been domesticated, right? Like we have messed up mostly nature. And so some of nature needs our help now because we've endangered them in the first place. Like, like we have created the situation where we have to have like sanctuaries and we have to pull out the endangered species, right? Because, you know, of all the things that we like do to the world. But isn't it amazing, like, what the passage says, that birds of the air get fed and that plants of the field, like, they're clothed and they're all taken care of, and they don't really need us. God just, like, manages all that. You know, uh, this is from uh, Matthew 10. Matthew 10 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Is that a crazy passage? This is a crazy idea, and this is like, uh, you know, Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out on a mission trip, basically. And he's saying, hey, don't worry about what men can do to you, right? Because, because rather, it says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And this is because birds were the cheapest animal to buy for sacrifice, Right, so they're the cheap two sparrows for a penny. Basically, you know, the idea is like they're cheap, right? But even the cheapest animal that you can buy, they do not, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So God sovereignly controls all of that. Even the two cheapest birds in the market, right? They can't die unless God allows it to happen, unless God controls that. He is sovereign over all of that. So, there's this, um, there's this psychological phenomenon. It's called the illusion of control. The illusion of control. This is the belief that we have influence over events in which we are powerless. For example, random events. Right? It is, this is an extremely common mental heuristic. That just means that it is this naturally learned belief. It's something that we just come to learn over time, and we just believe that it's true, even though we don't really recognize that we believe that it's true. So, for example, uh, one example of this is called the gambler's fallacy. Right? If you've ever gambled, right, like you might know this, but even if you were to, uh, I don't know, even if you were to play, you ever played a board game, right, you'd know this, because in the study, participants were shown to throw dice at varying levels of force depending upon the number that they needed. So if they needed a higher number, they would, like, throw the dice harder, right? And if they needed a lower number, they would throw the dice, like, softer, right? And if you've ever, like, played Monopoly, you know, or, like, Catan or, like, whatever, like, if you ever played a game where there's dice involved, you do that, right? Because you're like, oh, I need double sixes, right? And then you, like, you, like, throw it really hard and then it flies off the table or whatever, right? Like, there are things, because you think, for some reason, in your brain, you think, oh, I have some control over these events. But you know that how hard you throw the dice doesn't matter, right? It's completely random. 
Like, like you throwing the dice doesn't matter because it's going to be random one way or the other. But for some reason, we believe that we have some control over that. And even when I say that, right, some of you, like if you play craps, if you've ever played craps at Vegas, you think like, no, 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 I'm a good, I'm a good thrower. <laughs> you know, you think, no, I'm good at craps. You can't be good at craps, right? It's, it's just, I mean, you could be good at betting, but you can't be good at throwing the die. Like, it's just purely luck. You can be lucky, sure. That doesn't mean you're good at it. It just means you're lucky. Despite what we think when we play games of chance or, for example, what you do for your sports team to win, right, like a superstitious ritual, what you're doing has no actual effect on the outcome. But we believe in this illusion of control. And I bring this up because we often wrongly believe that if we simply had more control over the circumstances of our lives, our problems would be solved. If I had more financial freedom, if I had more flexibility, more hours, more time in general, my problems would be solved because I would have more control. If I had more of a voice or an influence you know, in my company or my work or my family, if the people around me, like my coworkers or bosses or employees or neighbors, family members, friends, whatever, if the people around me were more like me, we'd be better off. And we tend to believe things like that because we believe that we have control over things that we have no control over. In fact, like think about this for a second, okay? Even if you had God's power, even if you had the control that God had, this is basically, this is basically the, the plot of Bruce Almighty, right? The movie Bruce Almighty. But basically, like, let's say Morgan Freeman came to you and was like, hey, I'm going to give you all the powers of God, right? And, like, you have the power of God, but you don't have the mind of God. Like, you don't have the wisdom of God. And all of a sudden, the world stops operating the way it's been operating. So all the laws of the world, all the laws of, like, physics and, you know, the things that biology, the things that govern the world, all those cease. They just stop. But you have the power of God. What would you do with the power? What would you do with it? You know, Dutch-born British physician and scientist, a guy named Jan Ingenhaus. I think I, I think I said that right. Jan Ingenhaus. This guy's from like the 1700s, right? This man discovered photosynthesis. You guys know photosynthesis, right? You guys remember like eighth grade science? Photosynthesis, the process by which green plants absorb sunlight, um, and they turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, right? Or they take in carbon dioxide, they release oxygen. This guy discovered photosynthesis. But God invented photosynthesis. God invented that, right? Like, you know, Einstein, he discovered the theory of relativity. But God invented the things necessary for that, like space and light and time. Isn't that crazy? Like scientists discover things but that, that God invented, like the life cycle and the water cycle and the cell cycle and the food chain and like the electromagnetic spectrum and migration patterns and weather patterns and sound waves and light waves. Do you know that none of that existed, right? And God invented it. 
He created it out of nothing. God is the author of the script of history. Right? He's better than, you know, Spielberg or, you know, Nolan or Shakespeare or Hemingway. They write fiction. God writes reality. My point is that God's not a little bit better at being in control than you are. God is utterly better. He's far better. He's a far more capable and competent sovereign than you or I. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, when I say that, you shouldn't be sitting in your seat being like, oh, yeah, I guess God is pretty good. You know, like, oh, oh, yeah, amen. You know, like in your head, like sitting back with your arms, like, yeah, yeah, amen. You know, God, God, God's good at being in control. No, God is, God is crazily better at controlling things than you are. So this idea that we're going to wrestle with God for control over our lives, this idea that, ah, you know, God knows some stuff, but I really know my stuff. Like, I'm really an expert when it comes to this thing in my life. Like, God might know some things, but he doesn't know my mom. You know, like, he doesn't doesn't know my friend. He doesn't know the person sitting next to me, right? Like, Like, when it comes to these things, yes, maybe God has some general helpful things, but when it comes to really the details of this relationship, when it comes to really the details of my work, I need to have things in my control. We can't do that. I guarantee you, if that's the way that you approach your days, you will feel so burdened. You will be very tired at the end of every day from trying to control things that you never had any business thinking that you could control. For example, any other person. Because none of us has control over that. We can't just acknowledge that God is a better sovereign. We have to celebrate it. And I tell you, church, that is something you should celebrate. The fact that you don't have control over a lot. Right? Like, you should certainly exercise, we talked about this last week, right? Like, self-discipline, self-control. The Bible repeatedly encourages us to do that. Exercise self-control, self-discipline. Did any of you guys read the Bible this week? <laughs> Seven days this week? I know some of you did. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. And I'm very encouraged by that. Right? That's awesome. That is what we should try to do. But when it comes to any other person, that's not something we should be trying to control. Now, how, how though, can we just let God be in control? So here's the second thing, right? So the first thing is we have to trust that God is an utterly better sovereign than we are. The second thing is trust that God is utterly better to you than you are to yourself. God is utterly more gracious and more loving to you than you are to yourself. Look what it says here. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. You know what I mean? Like basically he's saying birds don't work. Right? They don't have a nine to five. 
And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then look at this line right here. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value to God than birds? Do you guys know what God originally named the birds? As a trick question, God didn't name the birds, right? God just created the birds. Adam named the birds. Adam named everything, right? Because God just created everything. And then he said, Adam, humans, you guys have dominion over the earth. You can name this thing whatever you want because it exists for you. That's how comparatively little God cared about the birds compared to humans, Right? God created everything in all of creation, and then on the last day, he created the pinnacle of his creation, humankind, Adam and Eve. And he says, you guys have dominion over all the earth. You can do anything you want except eat for this one tree, from this one tree. That's a whole other story for another day. We won't go into that. But basically, he's saying, you do anything you want, right? Like, this is all for you. You can go anywhere. You can eat anything. You know, you can play anywhere you want. And by the way, you can name everything because you have dominion over everything, And yet, God cares for the birds. He still feeds them. Right? Not only that, it says, he says, the lilies of the field, and some commentators note that he's probably in a field of of flowers, and he's like, look at the field, look at the flowers. Right? So they can see the beauty of nature in the flowers. He says, they neither toil nor spin. They don't work. They don't got nine-to-five jobs. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon, the wisest man ever, and who was like crazy rich. You know, the Queen of Sheba came all the way to see him because that's how crazy he was. And, he, and, and Jesus is saying, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't like as beautiful as a flower. Something in nature that doesn't work for its own beauty. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, it's alive today and it's dead tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? Like, do you get how incredibly valuable you are to God? Do you realize how much God loves you? How committed he is to taking care of you? You know, um, I was having this conversation with Sam the other day. We were talking about our kids, right? I was talking about Eli. I was talking about Micah. And we were just basically talking about how they, how they annoy us. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're just, like, bonding over this, right? And, um, and they, do this very, they do this similar thing, actually. Uh, something that, you know, Micah does all the time, actually. It's I'll scold him for something, like he'll do something, he'll make him, you know, he'll, he'll just like, he'll spill something, or he'll hit Joe's eye, or something like that, right, and I'll kind of like, I'll yell at him, you know, I won't yell at him, but I'll I'll scold him, I'll lecture him, and then the thing is, he'll say, um, he'll be like, appa, you know, like, don't be mad, he'll say that, right, like, like, don't be mad, kind of this like, like, daddy, don't be mad, basically, right, because when, when he feels like I don't love him, when he, when he gets that sense from me, he becomes very, now it causes really three things. He gets anxious, he gets sad, and he rebels. Those are the three things that happen, right? He, 
first, like, he feels like something's wrong oftentimes. He, he feels either guilt or he feels ashamed or he feels like, like just the relationship isn't right somehow. And sometimes, you know, before I would always say, he'd be like, are you mad or like, you know, whatever. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not mad, you know. And I would, I would kind of come to my senses like, oh, I'm not mad, you know, this is fine. Like, you know, I love you, like stuff like that. But then now, it's like he's getting a little older, right? So he'll be like, don't be mad. And I'll be like, I'm not mad. And I'll just like stare him down. Like, I'm not mad. I'm just, just do the thing. Like, you know, like that's, that will be my reaction. And so, yes, I'm saying I'm not mad, but he feels it, right? He knows something is not quite correct. And so it doesn't fix it. He still feels like something's wrong. And I realize you know, these are, these are the lessons of God, right? I realize that that's how I am with God. You know, because when I sin or fail, either by intentional rebellion or simply by selfish ignorance, either way, uh, my r- immediate reaction is not often to repent. It's not often where I'm just like, oh, God, I just want to come back. No, my immediate reaction, my gut reaction, usually is to be anxious, Right? I feel guilt. You know, I feel shame. I feel unworthy, whether as a man or as a father or as a husband or as a pastor, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is, or as a son. And then to deal with that anxiety, that fear, and that guilt, I can do one of two things. And I, I feel really the tension of this choice often. And I think it's one that if we think about it, it's one that many of us feel. I can convince myself that I'm lovable, right? I can affirm myself. I can explain why I did that. I, there's a reason I was tired, you know, or things I've been very stressed. You know, there's been other things happening in my life. You know, they did something to me first. That's why I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm right. I have a good reason to act the way I did, to say what I did, to think how I do. There's a term for this. This is called uh, self-justification. It is us justifying ourselves, saying, I am right, and then explaining it to ourselves. Well, here's why I'm right. Here's why it was okay that I did that. It's going into my own heart to forgive myself so that I can love myself. Now, that's not usually, it doesn't usually work. Well, it never works. And the other thing I can do is lean into the truth that despite what I've done, despite what I've said, despite what I think, God still loves me. Because he does. Right? Like even when you make a mistake, even when you sin, even when you fall, even if it's for a long time, sometimes we walk away for God, from God for years. And God's not sitting over there being like, like this guy. Because God's like, God is not a sinful father like me, right? Which is the way I might look at Micah sometimes. No, but God doesn't do that. He still loves. Right? His love is enough to cover my sin if I simply confess it and repent of it. Basically, if I just go to him, if I just go to him, he's there. He doesn't, he doesn't run out of forgiveness. And by the way, his love doesn't have to be proven over and over and over again because it's already been proven on the cross. He gave up. God the Father gave up his own son, his only begotten son, his one true son, 
so that we could be his sons and daughters. Jesus gave up himself, his own life, so that we could be in relationship with him. You need to know that you are incredibly valuable to God. Right? It's very hard to trust him and to give up control if you don't believe that. You've got to believe it. No matter what you do, he's always there cheering for you, rooting for you, encouraging you to move forward, to inch closer toward him. And he may discipline us as well as any good father would. But he only wants you to succeed and to grow and to move forward. He is often kinder to us. In fact, he is always kinder to us than we are to ourselves. Now, before I, we're going to move to the end of this passage, but before we do, I want to give you a quick, um, just, just some things if you struggle with anxiety. And I think a lot of us do. Um, not just like us, I think like us, the collective us, like in the world. Um, I'm going to give you just real quick, like five real quick things to just do. And I think if you, if you feel that weight, Please try to do this, okay? First thing, uh, name it, right? So just say out loud what it is that you, not right now, <laughs> you're just, you know, later. Like, say out loud what it is really that you're worried about, you know? I, I'm worried that what's going to happen, you know? I'm worried about this, like, what exactly are you worried about in this circumstance, that you're wasting your time, that you're wasting your life, you know, that, that something's going to happen, you're going to run out of money, you know, that uh, what's going to happen with your parents, what's going to happen in this relationship, you know, what is it really that you're worried about? Try to just name it, say it out loud. Uh, the second thing I would say is share it. So once you can identify it, say talk about it, right? Talk about it with God and talk about it with others, you know, for example, a lot of, and I, I'm, I'm totally, I do this all the time, but when I get really stressed, like, I don't tell Boomy. You know, I don't tell my wife because I don't want her to know the things that I'm stressed about, and sometimes I don't want her to stress about them either. But that's bad, right? Like, I shouldn't do that. Like, we shouldn't do that. If you're worried about something, tell your spouse, you know, tell your significant other, right? Tell your best friend. Third thing is just remember these two things that we just talked about. One, remember God's in complete control. Two, remember God loves you more than you love yourself. And then the last thing is seek God's kingdom. Okay, now this is the end of the passage, right? It says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Basically, they're, they're, you know, each day has enough to worry about. Now, really, I want to focus just on verse 33. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
So um, there is this uh, famous French philosopher. His name is uh, Denis Diderot. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I don't really care. Um, and he lived nearly his entire life in poverty. Okay, but all that changed in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 1765. So basically this guy, he authored one of the most comprehensive encyclopedias of his time, right, of the 1700s. And uh, Catherine the Great, uh, the empress of Russia, heard of, of Diderot's financial troubles, and she offered to buy his library for a thousand, you know, British pounds, Basically, uh, it, 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 it amounted approximately to like $50,000. So this guy's totally poor. He basically gets $50,000 for selling his library. And then he bought a scarlet robe, this scarlet robe, which was beautiful, right? And it was so beautiful, in fact, that he immediately noticed how out of place it seemed when surrounded by the rest of his common possessions because he used to be poor. So he bought this one robe, and it was so fancy, and it was so nice that he was like, dude, all my other stuff sucks, right? So in his, in his words, there was, quote-unquote, no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty between his robe and the rest of his things. So he bought a new rug from Damascus, and then he bought beautiful sculptures to fill his home, and then he bought a better kitchen table. This is from the 1700s, and I'm saying the story exactly as it happened. And then he bought a new mirror to place above the mantle. And he bought a new chair, a leather chair, instead of the straw chair that he had. And he started, his spending spiraled out of control. And this is what's known as today, uh, it's called the Diderot effect. It is when you buy something, and then all of a sudden you have to buy a bunch of things because you bought that one thing. Right? We all know this. Right? It's like you buy a new TV, and then you're like, I need surround sound. I need an entertainment center. You know, I need, now I have this and this, so I need, uh, you know, I need like an HDMI switch. You know, I need things to like put it all together, and then I got to put this here, and then I got to put this there, right? Like you buy a gym membership, right? Or you join a, you join some kind of fitness class, and then you're buying foam rollers, you know, you're buying knee sleeves, you're on a paleo plan, you know, it's like all of a sudden, all these things in your life change, right? You buy your kid one toy, and then you're like, dude, he's only got one you know, whatever, Paw Patrol toy or whatever. And then you're like, dang it, I got to buy him another one. Now he wants another, you know, it's like, this is boring just having one. So like you do it. I literally did this. You know, I bought Micah a lightsaber for his birthday. And then I was like, what can you do with one lightsaber, right? You can't do anything. So I had to buy another one, right? So at least we could battle each other. You know, it's like, and then you just start buying stuff. Like we all know that, Right? But let me just tell you something, because that's how a lot of us live our lives. You buy a house, and then your life is about furnishing that house, and then your life is about doing this and this. And I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. Okay, I mean, we should probably watch ourselves, you know, when we feel that happening. But if that's all we're living for, because that is, for a lot of us, the source of a lot of our worries, actually. None of us is worried about dying tomorrow, right? We're worried about, like, we're not li worried about living. We're worried about our standard of living. But that's a pretty empty life, just to be honest. We're going to find out that the things we really worry about weren't that important. You know, I, 
I say this a lot. Stephen Covey says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom first. Not second. Not third. Not at the end of the day when you're tired. Not when you have a spare moment. Seek the kingdom first. Do you want to attack your day with purpose? Then seek the kingdom first. Do you want your job to matter no matter what your job is? Then seek the kingdom first. Do you want to have a purpose for what you spend on and what you save for beyond that's cool or I want it? Then seek the kingdom first. Do you want a purpose in your marriage beyond just you exist for me to make me happy? Then seek the kingdom first. Do you want drive and motivation and a long-term vision for your family, your kids, so that they will grow up and love God and make him known and not just behave? Then seek the kingdom first. Before, if you're building a house, you don't think about what's on the third floor first. You think about what's on the foundation. We need to seek the kingdom first. Now, I don't want to go through all of this, but I, I just, we, we did this study, right, just yesterday, because we were talking about Joshua. Do you know how God prepares the Israelites to go to war? They're going to war. The book of Joshua is a book of conquest, right? They're going into the land of Canaan to conquer their enemies. And do you know what he tells them? He tells them this. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. They're going to war. And God doesn't say, make sure you got enough swords. He doesn't say, like, get the horses together. He doesn't say, start running. Right? Like, start doing some wind sprints just so your men are in shape because you're going to do battle. He says, read the Bible. That's what he said. That's how he prepared a nation for war. Right? So, yes, I do believe, literally, that if you care most about reading the Bible, about seeking God first every day, beyond, like, your budget, beyond your expertise in your job, beyond all the other things that are happening in your life, your relationships, all these kind of micro-interactions you have, all the other things, I literally believe. Like, that has to be the first thing, and all of those things will make sense when they're built upon this. First, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means the control of God, the reign of God. I want God to be over my life. First. Right, just one more. Psalm 4, and if maybe you read this this week. It says, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. Right? God, you put more joy in my heart than when the money's rolling in and I got plenty stored up. Right? When there's food on the table and it's delicious. You put more joy in my heart. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O oh Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Peace can only come. The real peace, the one that guards your heart, the one where you feel like even if I lost everything today, I'd still have peace. Even if I lost my job and my family and everything were gone, I'd still have a foundation of peace. Like you might not feel that in that moment, but you still know that there's somewhere you can go and there's something that you have that nobody can take away. That's real peace. 
Seek first the better kingdom, God's kingdom. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a quick application in closing. I did this last week, right? Try to read the Bible every day. I'm going to give you, I'm going to stretch you guys. We're going to try to go two weeks, all right? Now, you've read the Bible today. It was on the screen, hopefully. Continue in Psalm 7 to 12. One Psalm every day. They get a little bit longer, but none of them will be more than 20 verses, I promise. And here's the other thing, okay? Do it in the morning. And then pray this prayer. Okay, just three things. Pray this literal prayer. Okay? One, God, it's better for you to have control over my life. Two, God, you care for me better than I care for myself. Three, let me seek your kingdom first today. That's it, just those three things. God, it's better for you to have control over, complete control over my life. Wherever you want to take me, that's where I, that's not only where I want, that's where I should go, that's where I need to go. God, you care for me better than I care for myself because I do damage to myself often, and God never does. And three, let me seek your kingdom first today. Remember, God is seeking progress in us, not perfection. Every step we take in that direction, God loves. God delights in it. God rejoices in it. You know, Maybe, and for you, that, like, this week might not even be about that. It might just be like, I'm not sure where I'm in my faith, but I, I do get that me being in control hasn't worked. So I just want to just, I just even want to try to have a conversation with you, God, and see where we're at. God hears that prayer. God loves that prayer. He delights to help us and answer us when we're in need to be our strength, to be our refuge, to be our fortress, to be our rock. He wants that for every single one of us if we would let him in. Let's do that. Let's pray together. Uh, in fact, what we're actually going to do is we're going to have a time of uh, communion right now. And, um, you know, I actually kind of just want to offer us a little bit of time to to think, to respond to God. Um before we would take communion, I just I would say just if you're unsure where you are in your faith or you're not a believer, we would just ask that you would abstain from this. Maybe spend some time in your seat thinking, meditating, praying to God. Uh, but for those of us who are professing believers, and really for all of us, let's spend some time, whether you do this after you get it or not, um, kind of naming our anxieties and just laying them down. You know, what is it really that's on my heart, that I have such faith in, that I'm so worried about, um, and lay them down before God. He, he delights to hear us and to carry that burden for us. And so let's, let's spend some time. I'm going to read this passage. The, the worship team is going to kind of be playing over us. Uh, I'm going to read this passage and then pray for us. And then, you know, you can spend some time at your seat first. You can go back and, and grab you know, the bread and the, and the cup first if you want. But I, I really encourage you to kind of just spend some time um, doing that, really naming your anxieties. And so 
I'm going to read this verse from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that you delight to carry our burdens. In fact, God, you carried all of our burdens. You carried all of our sin and all of our guilt and shame and pain, past, present, and future. When your body, represented by the bread, was beaten, was damaged, God was torn, and was killed on the cross. God, when your blood represented by the fruit of the vine that we drink was shed, was spilled to cover over all of our sin, God. And God, you delight to continue to carry that burden for us every day if we would just honestly come and confess to you. We pray, God, that you would help us to do that now and you would also help us to remember that you care for us so deeply that we are so loved by you as we partake of this bread and this cup at this time. We entrust it to you. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.